0: I think that's all of our announcements and we are starting a new book today Uh, we're on our uh, third pastoral epistle which means it's a letter uh, to pastors for uh, how the church is to function and it's called Titus it's the book of Titus Titus chapter one and once you get there why don't you stand with me and we will read verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Excited to start this new book, short book, three chapters, some 46 verses or so, with a main idea in these first four verses that the salvation we have received in Christ Jesus leads to a life of godliness and a life of service to God, our Savior. Here in Titus verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, Paul has one of the longest introductions to his letter, although it's one of the shortest letters. And it's got what's been called a beautiful duet, a Christian sonnet of doctrine and deeds, belief and behavior, conduct and creed. It's in these first couple verses that we see the key of the whole three chapters that being sound in doctrine and zealous for good works are twin themes. They tie together this epistle, this letter. Titus has been called a bargain basement letter. It's the honey hole thrift store of the New Testament, right? It's so small, but it's just rich and packed full of good stuff. And we could consider the theme to be an, apost- an apostolic manual for church planting. It's very practical and yet doesn't lose its motivation that comes from the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so if you'll bear with me, let me just give you a quick outline of these four verses. In verse 1, we see that we are servants of our Lord. In other words, we are slaves, we are sent, we are selected, and we are sanctified. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see that we are secure in the Lord. In verse 2, we have his witness, and in verse 3, we have his word. And then in verse 4, we see that we are then separated unto the Lord. We share a common faith, and we're in God's family. And so that little bit of an outline kind of helps tie these together. And the reason I did that for you is because in reading and reading and writing out verses 1 through 4, it's a big, long, run-on sentence. Paul's good at that, you know, he, f- he just forgot that there's a period on his keyboard, and, and he puts commas and semicolons, and, you know, goes four verses without, you know, just giving us a breather, all right, and, uh, and so it can be kind of like, what's going on, and I noticed that these four verses are so rich, and as I was just laying in bed last night, I'm like, I'd love to just go on through the rest of the chapter with you guys, but but these four verses are so rich, and as I'm, l- and I'm laying there in bed, I'm like, no, not even rich, like, sweet no i don't know i don't know even if if it's sweet full it's just good this long run on sentence has got some good stuff for us and and i just i had to just kind of step aside from studying last night and just get my bible and sit at my table and just start writing out these four verses because i was just having a hard time like wrapping my arms around it you know and so as I'm writing, I'm like, oh, that's so good. I'm going circle that word. Oh, it's repeated over here. Ooh, that's, man, I wonder what's going on there with the repeat. You know, oh, like, God, our Savior, Savior again, Savior again. Oh, that's like got to have a cloud-looking circle around it because this is, there's just so much good stuff. And now somehow I've got to come and like give it to you. And so we read it together and now we're done, amen? All right, <laughs> worship team, come back up. Okay. But the outline is helpful to kind of help parse it up for us. All right. And so first of all, we see that, that like Paul, we are servants of the Lord. All right. Verse 1. Paul. And I liked doing a word study this week on the word Paul. It's Paulos. <laughs> a Paulos. You know. That's it. Paul. All right. He wrote the book. Paul. A servant of God, and so we are slaves of God. Paul was a slave to God, and we are a slave to God as well. In the Greek, it's the word doulos, doulos. It speaks of slave and servitude. It really comes from the picture of the galley slave in one of those Ben Hur style ships, you know. Uh, it, it has the connotation of the office of deacon with it where you know uh, you're you're in a sense an under rower in a slave ship you bring the power to the ship you move the ship and most of the time you're underneath the deck and nobody knows you're there you're just serving in obscurity and, and in in a sense it's sometimes unglamorous you're a slave and Paul said hey as I introduce myself, I'm a slave. Now, it's kind of interesting that Paul, who uh, was friends with, Tim, uh, with Titus, he would call him a little bit later a, uh, a son, a beloved son, um, a true son. Why is he introducing, introducing himself to Titus as if they never met? And the idea is that Paul knew that he would have this letter read before the, the churches there in Crete, on the island of Crete. And so he has to, in a sense, give his apostolic authority so that there's some bearing to the practical instructions that are going to be given here. And so, but in that, he doesn't list some resume with all sorts of just fantastic and wild, you know, pedigree, as he would maybe mention in Philippians chapter three. But he just says, hey, look, guys, I'm a slave, just a servant here. I don't know about you guys, but I can listen to someone with that kind of humility. I'm I'm a slave. I'm a servant. I'm an under rower, all right? I serve in obscurity in so many ways. James and Peter and Jude, they would also all use this term as an introduction to their letters. But it has this flavor from Exodus chapter 21 verses 1 through 6 this bond servant is an idea that comes from the old testament let me read it to you exodus 21 1 now these are the judgments you shall set before them if you buy a hebrew servant he shall serve you six years and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing if he comes in by himself he shall go out by himself if he comes in married then his wife shall go out with him if his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and, she, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an all and he shall serve him forever. So a very interesting thing here, a lot to be said regarding the servants and the slaves of that time, different in many ways than how we might think of slaves in our 1800s America. And yet all that to be said, there's, there's just this very special moment where this servant says, you know what, I could totally go out free. I could go be my own man. You know, to some people that just sounds awesome. I just want to go live for myself, go live the dream, maybe even live the life of a bachelor. All right. And yet he says, you know what? No, love my wife, love my kids, but I even love my master. And I want to be his forever by my own will, by my own choice. And so they would take this guy to the door and they would pierce his ear with an awl. Like, crazy stuff, right? By the way, kids, if you're looking for an excuse to get your ears pierced, just take dad to Exodus chapter 21, okay, Jacob? Okay, all right? But it's got to be an all. it's got to be an all. okay? Manly, wooden, beam in the ear, okay? And so when Paul says so many times in the epistles that he's a bondservant, what he's saying is, look, I could have been my own man but I encountered Jesus. Jesus encountered me, and I. what can I do but just give myself completely to him? He has the words of eternal life, and I bear the mark of my commitment to him. It's interesting here that he says that he's a bondservant of God. Normally, Paul says that he's a bondservant of Christ, and of course, to Paul, there's no difference. Christ is is deity, although he's not the father, but he is deity. He says, I'm God's slave, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm a slave of God. Now, when we as Christians realize that we too have been bought, not with gold or silver or even with the blood of bulls and goats but with the precious blood of Jesus then we too realize that we like Paul are bond servants we're willing slaves he's called me and I've responded to that call to be his forever pierce my ear sear it in my heart but what it does for us Christians is it brings humility in our lives humility that should be a characteristic of the servants of the Lord and so just in verse one not only do we see that as Paul is a slave we could apply that to us that we too are bond servants bond servants who are sent he's sent out as an apostle of Jesus Christ now apostle speaks of messenger or one who is sent Most often we look at apostles in the New Testament and we see that they had the office of apostle. It spoke of those disciples who lived and walked with Jesus and saw him risen from the dead. I do not believe that there are modern day apostles in the same sense that there were apostles uh, in the New Testament. However, there are missionaries, many, many missionaries who are sent out, sent out with authority to preach the gospel, and to herald it. Messengers of God. And so while Paul was sent as a biblical New Testament apostle with an office and authority, we too are sent out as apostles of Jesus Christ. Sent one. Missionaries. Sent out into Prineville after every Sunday service. Sent out into Crook County and Deschutes County. Sent out to the farthest parts of the world. Slaves who are sent Sent slaves who are selected. Check it out. According to the faith of God's elect. I'm a bondservant. I'm an apostle. And I'm not just an apostle who just does my own thing. It all is in harmony with what is believed by Christians. What is believed by God's chosen people. Interesting, in this verse, we have God's sovereignty, his power, his authority, his all-knowingness, and that he elects Christians. He elects those who will believe. And at the same time, we see human responsibility in that those have faith. They rest in the gospel. They rest in the, in the calling of the Lord. They trust in him. The Lord calls them and enables them, and then they believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. Like what uh, David Platt had to say. He says his apostleship exists for the faith. Here we have human responsibility of God's elect. Here's divine sovereignty. Paul sees no dichotomy, no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of man. Salvation from beginning to the end is the sovereign work of the grace of God. And yet no one will be saved who does not repent and believe. And all who repent and believe will be saved, Romans 10.13 says. I understand Paul to be a theological and soteriological Compatibilist, he believes God elected and predestined people to be saved but did so in such a way as not to violate their free will and responsibility to believe in the gospel Charles Spurgeon who's been known as the prince of preachers helps us kind of wrap our arms around it again where he says he saves man by grace and if men perish they perish justly by their own fault. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends, never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. And so it's wonderful to come to this verse where we see Paul's apostleship is in harmony with the faith in what is to be believed by the elect of God, by those chosen from the foundation, uh, before the foundation of the world, chosen by the grace of God. Donald Guthrie says when Paul uses the word elect, it stresses the idea of God's choice of his church. Now, in all of this, we rest in God's grace because Paul, what he does not do is tell others how they must qualify as God's elect. What do you have to do? But rather, he speaks of the faith that characterizes those who are God's, those who believe are God's elect meaning their eternal status is determined by the love of a heavenly heart and not by the work of human hands. It's all about grace. It's about the work of the heavenly heart of God that helps us to rest and not feel like we have to labor with our own human hands. Paul was a servant, a slave, who was sent, who was selected along with the church, and one who was sanctified. Because this uh, faith that is according to God's elect, it's also, notice at the end of the verse, with the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. This faith of the elect comes with a belief, it is a belief, a trust an acknowledgement, an affirmation of truth. Truth is not relative. You do not have your own truth. There is a truth, one truth. And praise God, he didn't leave us to try to figure it out on our own. He gave revelation of his truth through the word of God, through the Bible. And we have it today. We have it, many of us in our hands right now. God's revelation of truth. And so we acknowledge that truth. And that truth accords with godliness. You see this word accord twice. It speaks of harmony, something that goes together. Think of an accordion. It's the donkey of instruments. Everybody knows it, right? Sorry, Mrs. Mapes, don't tell her I said that. That's yeah, she plays. She's good. Yeah. It's an accordion and it has harmony. You've got the keys and the buttons and the squeezing and the pulling. It's the bagpipes of, you know, well, that would be the bagpipes, I suppose. But as you pull and as you push and as you push and as you pull, you've got this sound and that sound and it all has harmony together as you play. Harmony, accordion, accordion files. You've got all your files at home in that accordion drawer, don't you? And your accordion file and yet all of those files are in one. The truth and the knowledge of the truth, it all is together. It all has harmony together with godliness. Truth and godliness cannot be separated. They are in accord with one another. They sing in perfect melody together. The Christian faith comes with the acknowledgement and the recognition of the truth. Do you acknowledge the truth of the Bible? Of who God says He is, what His character is, what His attributes are, that He is a holy, righteous, all powerful, all knowing God. Do you acknowledge the truth, what the Bible says about you? You are not holy. You are not all-knowing. You are not everywhere. But that the Bible says that you are a rebel. You are a sinner. You have turned your back on God. And you are at war with God. That apart from Jesus Christ, you will perish. That the wrath of God is upon you. Acknowledge that. Recognize that. Apart from Jesus, I'm in big trouble acknowledge that in harmony with that is the beautiful story that God didn't leave us in our pit of despair, but that he set his son, his one and only son, whom he loved, to live a life not of rebellion, but of perfection. That in every point he was tempted to sin, but never did sin. That son would then die the death Of a sinner on a criminal's cross. Sacrificing himself. Substituting himself for us. Dying in our place. It's been called the great exchange. Where the just died for the unjust. So that anyone who believed on him. Would become just. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned do you believe in the truth that accords with godliness the truth is also that once you believe on the rescue plan of god he puts the holy spirit the third person of the godhead in your life so that not only will you want to obey but you can obey you'll live for him you'll obey him you'll tell people about him you'll be a part of godliness living godliness and so the life of a slave the life of a servant the life of someone who's been selected is someone who is also sanctified someone who lives a godly life someone who's been set apart from the direction that this world wants to push you and now goes the direction that the spirit of god drives you This acknowledgement of truth goes hand in hand, is tied together with godliness. The story of godliness is seen in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Here's the story. God was manifested in the flesh. We're celebrating that this week as we Recall the birth of Jesus at Christmas. God was manifested in the flesh. We'll look at that next week. Justified in the spirit. Seen by the angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. Not only is there a message of godliness. But there's a life that's in accord with the message of godliness. Guthrie writes that the truth leads to godliness. It goes with a religious life. It goes with a religious life. One commentator states it this way A profession of the truth, which allows an individual to live in ungodliness, is a spurious profession. So if you claim to be a servant of God, it's wonderful, slave of God, I think that would be me, someone who's been selected by God, someone who is sent by God, and yet you don't claim to be someone who is being sanctified by God, you, you, it's not that you don't know that, the wonderful thing is today, now you can know that, oh, so sanctification is part of this whole thing. But if you're someone who says, no, I can just go on living in my sin with no godliness being imparted to me and being lived out in my life, that is a spurious confession, a spurious profession. The word spurious means it's a false confession. It's bogus. It's fake. It's counterfeit. Kent Hughes says, the terminology does not merely indicate that knowledge of truth accompanies godliness, but rather has the purpose of godly fruit in the life of the believer. The relationship with God established by gospel faith and knowledge culminates in righteous actions. So the beautiful thing for you today who call yourself a Christian, a slave, a servant of God, a a selected one of God, someone who's even sent out of God, is that today, He's bringing you here before his word to know he wants you to also be sanctified. He wants you to repent of your sin and now bear fruits worthy of repentance. How wonderful that he teaches us these things. And it's important to note that the end of verse 1 is a key to the whole book of Titus. The fact that godliness is in accord with truth and truth is in accord with godliness is a key that we will find time and time again in this short three chapter book that the gospel leads to godliness in other words what i believe will affect how i live and how i live will demonstrate what i believe my life must conform to my doctrine. It will. It will be natural. The Spirit of God does that in us. Grace in me will produce godliness in me. Now, again, yesterday, had to just kind of sit down with my Bible, which is probably a good thing to do as a pastor. Sat down with my Bible. Oh, I might need this thing. Okay, wow. Okay. Got it out. Got my paper. Wrote out the first four verses. Underlined it. Pulled it apart. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah, wow, ooh, wow okay did all that and then just read through the book again to just get a feeling of it all and do you know what i noticed in a simple reading of it all look down at your pages with me okay it's also on the screen but i think it might be better if you have it in front of you okay so in verse 1 and i had to write little notes at the bottom of my bible verse 1 shows us there's an acknowledgment of the truth which accords with godliness. Okay. So truth is with godly living. Then at the other end of the chapter, go down to verse 16. You have a group of people that profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. Okay. So at the end of the chapter, he says, there's a group of people who say they believe, they profess to know God, but their conduct, their behavior is not godly. Okay, they are abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Okay, so the bookends of chapter 1 speak towards this belief and behavior being tied together. Now flip over, possibly in a page, to chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Praise God. We love grace, don't we? Grace, grace. G to the R to the A to the C to the E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That nothing, it's not about what I have done but about what he has done for me in his love and in his kindness and in his gift to me through Christ Jesus. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's about grace, 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 and and the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We love that, but there's a comma, and it moves us on to verse 12. That, that grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So do you see again how grace, we believe in grace, we sing about grace. We love grace. Many of us name our daughters grace. It's just a beautiful name. But grace leads to good living. It leads to good living. It's Just a natural outflow of people who are loving grace. Now go to the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. All right, Rory, we're getting it. It's kind of getting old already and... Okay, well, sorry, but Paul tells pastors to affirm this constantly. That those who have believed in God shall be careful to maintain good works. Okay? So, right belief leads to right behavior. Okay? And then let's jump down to verse 14. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So if you're part of our people here, we want you to learn to maintain good works. But that's not separate from the beautiful story of God's grace that saves us, So that we can maintain good works. That puts the spirit of God in us. So that we can and will and shall maintain good works. You plant a fruit tree. The fruit tree will bring some fruit. Okay. It's just a natural thing about being a fruit tree. Same with being a Christian. A Christian will blossom. Now we all know. You plant a flute, fruit, a flute tree, also there's flute trees, and it's beautiful, harmony, music, okay, fruit trees, you know, you plant them in this soil, and they're not bearing fruit, and you don't give them the right nutrients, or they're in the wrong, man, they've got to be in the right food, and be hydrated, and there has to be these sources and means of grace being poured into these trees, so that that fruit will just naturally blossom, Kent Hughes says again, it seems almost counterintuitive that a great vision of grace would bring a great commitment to holiness. But this is precisely what happens in the heart of a true believer. Paul will drive home the theme of grace engendered holiness again and again and again in the book of Titus. So, are you struggling with your behavior? Are you struggling with obedience to the Lord? What is the level in your life of meditating on the grace of God? How often are you meditating on the grace of God? How, awesome, how often are you loving the grace of God? Thinking about the grace of God. Thinking about how it's nothing in your hands that you bring, but, but the power of God towards you that brings life and light. How often do you meditate upon your, like Johnny was saying, just like, Man, think about the trajectory of your life. Going to hell in a handbasket, am I right? (laughs) That was your life. And yet God, but God, but when the goodness and kindness of God, our savior toward man appeared, he's gonna say in chapter two, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his own grace, he's saved us. Spend time thinking about that well, I do, you know, I have my quiet time in the morning and then like I never think about Jesus for the rest of the day. I live for myself and I still struggle. May I submit that you spend more time thinking and praising God for his grace. Right, think of Daniel. It was his custom morning, noon and night to spend time before the throne of God in prayer. The psalmist says, morning and noon and night, I come before you in prayer. How often are you coming before the Lord Preaching the gospel of grace to yourself. When you preach it to yourself, you start preaching it to others. One of my greatest moments of preaching the gospel this year outside of church was spent after an hour long drive of preaching the gospel to myself. I was preaching to myself. Rory, this was you. You were a sinner going to hell. But God, but Jesus. Think what Jesus did. He came, He lived a life, He died the death of a sinner. And all of his goodness was put into your account, Rory. You remember that day, Rory, that you trusted in him, that you believed in him? And Rory, you remember all those times that you fumbled and bumbled and stumbled and sinned? And how the Spirit of God in you gives you sorrow for that sin? And you know you can't continue in that sin? Something's got to give. There's got to be some repentance. And the Holy Spirit leads you to that repentance? Praise God, worshiping the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. And then you're there with people and you just start preaching the gospel to people. How often do you preach the gospel of grace to yourself? How often do you sing songs of being thankful for the gospel of grace? How often do you meditate upon grace? As you do, a beautiful floral arrangement coming off of your life will be that you are living lives for Jesus. Truth accords With godliness. Vance Havner, great preacher, commented on the church's failure to move from faith to godliness. And he writes We are challenged these days, but not changed. We are convicted, but not converted. We hear, but do not. And thereby we deceive ourselves. And so I ask you today, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you heard? You might say, I've heard plenty. I've H-U-R-D. I heard it, okay? Heard it my whole life. Raised in Sunday school. I've heard it, okay? But have you been converted? Have you been born again? Have you received the spirit of God in your life that you can now want to live for God? That's a beautiful hope of the gospel is that he changes us. He converts us. It's a beautiful thing. When I was in high school, I was preaching the gospel to kids at school in the lunch line. And they were, uh, man, it was 2000. No, no, no. It was 97. Okay. 1997. And the grunge look was kind of in. I don't even think this was grunge. Skater black, black fingernails, you know, not me. <laughs> this wasn't me. Uh, Would have been okay if it was, it just wasn't me, okay? Uh, who I was preaching to, right? Uh, the, the dog necklace on, you know, dog collar necklace. Uh, and we start sharing the gospel. And this kid turns to us and he spits in our face. Stop trying to convert me. You just want to convert me. We do not That's exactly what I want to do. Now you can come to Jesus wearing black, dude. Paint your fingernails all you want. Put an all in your ear. It's in the Bible, okay? Wear a dog collar for some reason, all right? Just remind you that you're a slave of God, sure, all right? But I want to convert you. I want to convert your heart. I want you who have a heart of stone, as Ezekiel and Jeremiah said, To be given a heart of flesh. You're stone cold Steve Austin right now, man. (laughs) Nothing's getting in there. But the work of the spirit of God is that he regenerates you. He takes out that heart of stone that cannot beat, cannot know God, doesn't even want to know God, might act like it wants to know God, but at the end of the day, know God. And puts in a heart of flesh that beats and is alive. And naturally wants to obey. That's what happens when we're born again. That's what happens when we're saved. That's what happens when we're converted. We're changed from the inside out. It's a work of transformation that happens. Boy, howdy. Verse 2. It's not my fault the sound booth people forgot to turn on my timer. Okay? I have no bearing of how long it's been right now. So I'm just going to go as it feels right. Secondly, we are secure in the Lord in hope of eternal life, verse 2, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. So we are servants, we are selected, we are sent, and we are sanctified, and we also see here we are secure. We have a hope of eternal life. This is his witness to us. It's a basis for hope that we have. The word hope here speaks of a confident certainty and expectation of something that is not yet ours, but will be. This kind of hope has been called the superstructure of Christian service. It's the foundation on which Christian service is built. Now look at Romans 8. I love this verse about hope in Romans 8, 24, that we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for why does one still hope for what he sees now if we can all just be real about how selfish and fleshly we are during christmas when our mom and our sisters are like what do you want for christmas and you're like no okay no i'm way too old for that no please just send me a list okay it's like total excuse for covetousness right now just give me it all you know love you, send, okay, okay, and so then we're waiting for Christmas, right, and we're just like, it's coming, you know, all the presents, we're gonna get to open it, I wonder what it's gonna be like, and how shiny it is, and what color it's gonna be, and how it's gonna fit, hope it fits well, returns, you know, right after the holidays, that is not a line you want to be in, you know, you're just hopeful, right, in the day of amazon.com, you're just waiting for the mailman to come by, just like, In this passage, the language speaks of craning your neck. (laughs) Every day, does not come? It's okay. It's okay that it didn't come today. It'll come tomorrow. Even the next day, it doesn't come. It's okay. It's coming, right? Now, you all know that when the package comes or the gift is set on your lap and you open it up and it's like, oh, okay. Well, guess we're done here, you know? It's like, it just loses that sharp edge of excitement. And that's the language that says there in Romans chapter 8. Where it says, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. This eternal life thing. And I don't believe that when eternal life is seen face to face, that we're going to be like, whoa, whoa. Boy, that was not worth the wait. You know, it'll totally be worth the wait. This eternal life. John 3.15. Can we just take one second as we are closing down. I tease. Okay, we are closing down. Can we just take a moment though and think about eternal life? Life that is eternal. Everlasting life. This next verse we're going to read. Everlasting life. Life. I'm just having a hard time wrapping my mind around that. It's something of Indiana Jones legend, right? Is it the, What's the thing that if you drink, isn't it, you drink the Holy Grail? That's the everlasting life thing because there's the Ark of the Covenant. I get them all confused, but I think it's Holy Grail. Drink it, you'll live forever, you know? Everyone wants that. It's something of, of almost myth or legend. Everlasting life. And yet it is a hope that we have as Christians. Meditate with me on just a couple verses here. John 3.15, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We've talked a lot about believing in him today, haven't we? Believe on him, you won't perish. Eternal life goes on, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. John 10, 28, Jesus says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Security, no one's stealing you away from Jesus, eternal life, no perishing. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. do you believe this? Do you believe this everlasting life? Even though you might die here on earth, you'll live. There's a resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life eternal life, everlasting life, never perish kind of life. Sounds like life, doesn't it? Sounds like life. Sounds like something that we can have the hope in that we read of. Look at Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. Good news and bad news here. The bad news, you're a sinner and you're going to die. Okay, that's your payment for sin. Congratulations. Hope it was worth it. Oh, but good news. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Total remedy for sin. Total remedy for perishing. Total remedy for our rebellion. Gift of God. It's called grace. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. And I want to encourage you here today to lay hold on eternal life. You've heard enough of the gospel today that you can place your trust in that good news of what Jesus has done and receive him today. You can lay hold of him. You can cling to Jesus today. And I encourage you to do that. You might not know totally what it means for you, except that you know that there's life in Jesus. Lay hold of eternal life. Later on in 1 Timothy 6, verse 19, it says, storing up for yourself eternal life rather storing up for yourself a good foundation for the time to come that you may lay hold on eternal life this eternal life is something that god has promised and the beautiful thing is that god cannot lie can't lie god can do everything in his holy will he cannot lie and he has made a promise eternal life to those who trust in him rest in him receive him believe in him that's in stark contrast to satan who is a liar and the father of all lies don't believe the lies of satan today right now you're kind of in one of those situations like the cartoons you know where you got like an angel on this side and a devil on this side and they're like pulling you one way or another just kick the devil to the curb he's a liar you know what the lie is you know what the truth is today you're hearing it believe in the lord jesus christ And as the worship team comes up, this eternal life was promised before time began. It goes on to say, but that is in due time been manifested. As in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. You know it's exciting to be a pastor and to be teaching the word and just be wondering when you get up to like the holidays you know and just see like lord where would you have me preach from next week at the christmas service and it's always just a total bonus beautiful thing when where you're already at like in titus there's a sweet christmas message now truth is every bible section is a christmas section okay But there's something really beautiful here in Titus chapter one that we're going to look at next week. When we read again of God promised eternal life before time began and has in due time manifested his word. And we're going to look at that next week. All right. So you can set your things aside.